final hour underway. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Um, I don't know. Like All I can do is what I can do. This is like Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. I know he's got more rules now, but the original ones, you know, like one of them was before you change the world, clean up your room. And the point of that is like people, it always amazes me too, people who don't even have their own room in order feel empowered, obliged, uh, privileged, or uh, entitled to uh, assert that they can fix the whole rest of the planet. And um, I, you know, I think, hey, maybe you should put your own house in order, start with your room, and then you can affect this one little corner of the planet. You can do something there. And then once you get that in order, then you go to the, you know, maybe add a couple rooms and then the whole house and then the the yard and the property and when, and then your your you know your school your town your county and you just kind of work from there. So uh, I you know, I I don't know. I mean, to Bill's point, who called in about how you know this whole energy plan is just garbage or whatever. And like I I gotta be honest. Like I I, I did not. I was not persuaded. He did not make a compelling argument that I should reject the North Carolina legislative energy plan that apparently reduces the carbon uh, emissions and footprint and uh, maintains state regulation. It allows business people uh, to make business decisions and uh, provides multi-year rates. I'm not sure that I need to reject this entire piece of legislation because of the chlorophyll depletion in the Amazon. But I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong. I do know that America has more trees now than it did 100 years ago. It's science. So uh, I think that's a good thing, and I'm okay with planting more trees. So, like, that would be something that Bill could do is to go out and plant more trees. I've seen video on uh, on the interweb about some guy uh, over the course of, like, 20 or 30 years, he would, like, float his little boat over to some desert island, and he started planting trees. And after 20 or 30 years, now this island is like a forest. And there's all this wildlife and all this stuff going on. It's, and it's really cool. But it takes a long time. It's the old proverb, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? Yeah, 30 years ago. So I'm okay planting trees. I endorse trees. Pete Callender, going out on a limb. No pun intended there. Uh, endorsing trees. Pete Callender likes trees. Except pine trees. Those things, I could do without them. Just honestly, I could, I can do without them. Although I will say the, uh, the, the, the canker worms don't go after the pine trees, but the ticks live in them and roaches. So I'm not a fan. They fall down too. They're pretty weak. And they, they drop all those, those spike balls and they, they, they shed all of the pine needles. I, I'm not a fan of the pine, uh, not a fan of the, and when you turn them into cabinets in the old kitchens, not a fan of that either. The naughty pine cabinets, not a fan either. Anyway, I digress. Reverend Barber, um, in a 2018 speech, Reverend Barber said that the 2016 presidential election was rigged. He claimed that Donald Trump was, quote, selected, not elected, and that Republicans hijacked the Supreme Court because Trump was only president due to a racist electoral college. Yeah. So this is Blue Anon. I've talked about Blue Anon before. This is the conspiracy theories that animate the left but get coverage as legitimate 
and completely rational, not at all crazy conspiracy theories in the mainstream media. The, uh, the left gives this guy a pass for his craziness because he is the right political party. Although he is, I mean, demanding a sit down with Biden over this stuff, but he wants to help. He's doing it because he wants to help. So there's that. Now, um, the idea here that there's a different standard, we always go over this, right? There is obviously a different standard, but that's par for the course. I'm not trying to convince media to treat Democrats the same. I know you will not, uh, but it's important to know that this is what they are saying, folks on the left. And so, for example, Terry McAuliffe was asked um, uh, on a TV station, he's running for governor, and he was asked about comments that he made when he was running, or sorry, when he was head of the DNC about the 2000 election. All right, so take a listen to this. But in 2004, you said this about the election where President Bush beat Al Gore. Let's go back to Florida. We actually won the last presidential election, folks. They stole the last presidential election. Okay, so first I want to talk about this. Was President George Bush legitimately elected? Well, we went through a very contentious 2000, if you remember. And I remind you, it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And it took them through the second week of December to actually make a decision. And the Supreme Court, for the first time in the history of our country, stopped the counting of ballots in Florida and overturned the local Virginia or the uh, Florida Supreme Court. So yes or no? So that was a different. Yeah, he got sworn in. Once you're sworn in, we got to move on. But do not forget that it was very important that the Supreme Court of Florida stopped the counting of ballots. Okay. That wasn't the case in uh, 2020. Well, you came out with a new ad this week. Sure. Challenging Mr. Youngkin's prioritizing election integrity. Yeah. Uh, you said Glenn is again casting doubt on election results and putting Trump's conspiracy theories first. This behavior is dangerous and it's disqualifying. Yeah. So my question to you is, yeah. what is the difference between what you said... And what you're accusing him of. Well, first of all, I'll say it again. That case in 2000 went to the United States Supreme Court, went through the Florida Supreme Court. None of that happened in 2020. I think there were 33 suits brought, as you know. Every single one of those were thrown out, many of them by judges appointed by Donald Trump. But let's be clear. For eight months, Glenn Youngkin had one thing on his website, election integrity. Just yesterday, he got caught saying... We need to audit all of Virginia's voting machines. We don't have election fraud here. This is, you know, it, it, it's buzzwords that they try to use to the Trump base to keep them happy. So the difference is just it going to the Supreme Court. There were legitimate complaints that went all the way up and certified by the United States Supreme Court. There was none of that in the 2020 election. Okay. But I didn't, at the time, let's be very clear, I wasn't running for governor. I wasn't, my main issue was, I was chairman of the Democratic National Committee at the time. There you go, that's it, that's the difference. The Supreme Court was looking at it, the Supreme Court, which by the way, didn't this, some of the stuff in 2020 did go to the Supreme Court, they chose not to rule in it, but that's the main difference, and the fact that McAuliffe wasn't running for governor at the time. See, so it's okay when we do it. <laughs> this is the argument, literally the argument. I wasn't running for office at the time. So it was different. See, I can accuse a president of not being legitimately elected because I wasn't running for governor at the time. But if I was running for governor, then I would never have said that sort of thing.
couple of uh, emails here. This one from Jason, who says, So Reverend Barber has the idea there are Jews out there controlling and manipulating the world, and simultaneously he's accepting money from George Soros, who is Jewish, also incredibly rich and powerful. Oh, and also was a Nazi as a youth. Side note, anti-Semitism is a serious festering problem across the board, but mainly heard today from progressive voices. That is true. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the email. And this is from Scott, uh, who I guess this is in reference to caller Bill, who says chlorophyll, more like borophyll. Yes. <laughs> All righty. Um, the National School Boards Association Thank you, Associated Press, by the way, for doing the big fact check on the uh, School Boards Association. Yeah, uh, the claim that you may have seen is that the School Boards Association was asking the Biden administration to label parents who protest school policies as domestic terrorists. Now, the AP, they they, uh, sicked their uh, fact checker on the case fellow by the name of Terrence Fraser and Terrence Fraser came up with the ruling of false false the Biden administration is not labeling parents who protest school policies domestic terrorists this is uh, this is a very common sleight of hand tactic that fact checkers like to take um, you either go really really narrow on a claim or go really, really macro on a claim so as to confuse what the original premise or argument was. Okay. So here is their ruling, the AP's ruling, that these, uh, the National School Boards Association is not asking Biden to label parents who protest at school board meetings as terrorists. So that's a straight up right, falsehood which makes some bit of sense if you think about it, because there are parents who go down there and protest school board policies, and those parents are leftists. And so surely the AP is you know, not going to argue that uh, the school board association is you know, calling uh, for the Biden administration to label those Democrats as terrorists, domestic terrorists, right? So obviously when you zoom out, and you say, well, are they asking any parent protesting policy to be labeled a domestic terrorist? Then no, of course not. The school board association asked the administration to do an interagency investigation of threats of violence against school board members and said the threats, quote, could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. Biden has yet to publicly comment on the issue, much like many other issues, and there's no indication he or the Department of Justice has called protesting parents domestic terrorists despite false claims to that effect by social media users. So there you go. Uh, this is now the other direction, which is go really, really narrow, tailor it to some people on social media are saying, okay, so what, you're fact-checking some, you know, some grandma with four followers on Twitter? Like, that's who you're... But they don't actually say that. They don't tell you who they're fact-checking. Now, they do bring up two accounts. One was an Instagram post widely circulated last week showing a screenshot of a tweet. Okay, so it's Instagram 
screenshot of a tweet by a fellow by the name of Chris Rufo, who has done a lot of anti-critical race theory activism. He's also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a conservative think tank. And what he said was the following, quote, the National School Boards Association asked the feds to crack down on anti-critical race theory protests as domestic terrorism. That's what Christopher Rufo said on Twitter. Is that true? And is that the claim that was fact-checked by the AP? The claim that the AP said was that the NC, sorry, the NSBA, the NSBA is asking the administration to label parents who protest school policies domestic terrorists. That's not what Rufo said, though. You fact-check something that Rufo did not say. Rufo said that the NSBA asked the feds to crack down on, not to label, but to crack down on anti-critical race theory protests as, quote, domestic terrorism. It's a crackdown on them. What is a crackdown? Like, that would actually have been a better fact check than the claim that they checked. What's the, what is a crackdown? Well, a crackdown is anything from investigations, right, into charges, sentencing, right, prosecution, maybe attempts to chill speech. All of that could count as a crackdown. Crackdown is kind of a nebulous term. But they didn't fact check that. There was another Instagram post. Uh, this one was a screenshot of a tweet that was uh, posted by Fight for Schools, which advocates for the full reopening of public schools, and they advocate against the teaching of critical race theory. And what this organization tweeted out was the following, quote, the NSBA is asking the Biden administration to label parents who protest school policies as domestic terrorists. Well, that's that's the claim that they checked. Why did you put Chris Rufo in with that? His tweet was something different. Why would you conflate those two statements? They're not the same. Now, Rufo sent a message uh, to the Associated Press. They had to go back and update their Uh, their fact check to include this. And he said that the Biden administration is quote, using the FBI to suppress parents and criminalize dissent. That's the only quote that they have from Rufo because then the AP says, in fact, the request for a law enforcement review did not come from the Biden administration. It came from the National School Board Association, which in its letter requested that federal agencies conduct a review to examine appropriate enforceable actions in cases of crimes and acts of violence. So, again, Rufo said, quote, the Biden administration is using the FBI to suppress parents and criminalize dissent. And the AP's response is, well, the request to look at this by the FBI didn't come from the Biden administration. Right, it came from the NCSB to the Biden administration. It's right there on the letterhead. I have it right in front of me. It says to the Biden administration. So then it went to the FBI, which is part of the Biden administration. See what I mean? This isn't a legitimate or honest fact check. It's like you're trying to drag Rufo for something that he hasn't said. And it undermines the credibility of the Associated Press in the process. 
So the National School Boards Association sent a letter to the president and the uh, subject line, if you will, regarding federal assistance to stop threats and acts of violence against public school children, public school board members, and other public school district officials and educators. Dear Mr. President, America's public schools and its education leaders are under an immediate threat. The National School Boards Association respectfully asks for federal law enforcement and other assistance to deal with the growing number of threats of violence and acts of intimidation occurring across the nation. Local school board members want to hear from their communities on important issues, and that must be at the forefront of good school board governance and promotion of free speech. However, there also must be safeguards in place to protect public schools and dedicated education leaders as they do their jobs. NSBA believes immediate assistance is required to protect our students, our school board members, and our educators who are susceptible to acts of violence affecting interstate commerce. Really? The interstate commerce clause on this one? Really? Okay. Because of threats to their districts, families, and personal safety. As our school boards continue coronavirus recovery operations within their respective districts, they are also persevering against other challenges that could impede this progress in a number of communities, coupled with attacks against local school board members and educators for approving policies for masks to protect health and safety of students and school employees, obviously. Many public school officials are also facing physical threats because of propaganda, reporting the false inclusion of critical race theory within classroom instruction and curricula. Ah, see, this is all, uh, these are all, Propaganda, misinformation, this is not happening. This propaganda continues despite the fact that critical race theory is not taught in public schools and remains a complex law school and graduate school subject well beyond the scope of a K-12 class. They're still running with this lie. They're still running with it. I only bring this up. Well, I shouldn't say only bring this up because this is, there was a specific ask. I'm bringing this up to let you know that the AP's fact checkers are crap. Um, but also, the specific ask here from the School Boards Association, right, they ask, direct quote, respectfully asks that a joint collaboration among federal law enforcement agencies, state and local law enforcement, and with public school officials be undertaken to focus on these threats. NSBA specifically solicits the expertise and resources of the U.S. Justice Department FBI, Homeland Security, Secret Service, National Threat Assessment Center, regarding the level of risk to kids and teachers and everyone else. And we also request the assistance of the U.S. Postal Inspection Service to intervene against threatening letters and cyberbullying attacks. Okay, As these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased, the classification of these heinous actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. As such, we request a joint expedited review by these agencies. And we request that such review examine appropriate and forcible actions against these crimes and acts of violence. What are they asking for? I think it's pretty clear, right? 
They're asking for federal intervention, listing all of the agencies they want to be involved, right? Get the feds involved, have them investigate people and organizations as the acts of malice, violence, and threats have increased, the classification could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. And they then request that such review examine appropriate enforceable actions against these crimes and acts of violence. They are asking for parents, organizations, they're asking for people to be labeled as domestic terrorists and perpetrators of hate crimes. They are asking for this, and the FBI is examining it. That's what Merrick Garland announced. So, there's that. There's also two other points here. Merrick Garland's son-in-law is apparently eyeballs deep into the critical race theory garbage. And you got to understand something about critical race theory and uh, critical legal studies, critical theory, uh, the, you know, the Gramscian roots and, and neo-Marxism, like all of this lineage, right? But, but then more recently, the intersectionality that uh, uh, was applied into the CRT uh, uh, law school studies and such, that intersectionality then sort of opened up the pathways for all of the different iterations of CRT, which now include like the anti-racism training, DEI training, SEL training, all of these types of trainings and uh, pedagogies, they're all part of this same sort of uh, this, this, this tree, right, that comes from the, uh, the Karl Marx seed. And I don't say that like, oh, it's communism. I'm saying it like this is clearly and explicitly explained, right? This is not me who came up with this stuff. This was they who came up with this stuff. Uh, and then they talked about it and they wrote about it. And if you read it, you can see it for yourself. It's, don't take my word for it. Go read for it. Uh, go read it for yourself. But Merrick Garland's son-in-law, fellow by the name of Alexander Tanner, married Garland's daughter, Rebecca, in 2018. He's the co-founder and president of a company called Panorama Education, a major player in the teacher training and curriculum industry, and it pushes race-focused surveys and conducts trainings on systemic oppression, white supremacy, unconscious bias, intersectionality. Like, all of this is under the rubric of what they call SEL, or social-emotional learning. It's another one of the acronyms you're going to need to be on the lookout if you got kids in uh, the public school system. S-E-L. Well, in private schools, too. There's a website called unheard.com. That's U-N-H-E-R-D, unheard.com. Ayan Hersi Ali wrote a piece, Critical Race Theory's New Disguise, and uh, she really... uh, Nails it. All right. So does critical race theory really exist? She says, not according to Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, Governor Blackface. CRT, he recently told the New York Times, is a dog whistle that the Republicans are using to frighten people. But rather than convince anybody about the non-existence of CRT, his comments merely confirm something else. Namely, 
CRT's remarkable ability to shapeshift into whatever form its advocates choose. So, for Northam, CRT might not exist, but that's only because it's undergone a rebranding. Indeed, a lot of people on the right have obsessed over the rise of CRT in the past year. A different abbreviation has quickly become entrenched in America's schools and colleges, and it's DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Part of its purpose appears to be to sow confusion. Think about that. You end up arguing with people on the left about whether or not you know what CRT is and whether that is or isn't the thing from the Harvard professors in the law school and whether that's actually being taught and nobody teaches that. You just heard it in the letter from the school boards association, right? It helps to sow confusion. It has certainly riled the Conservative Heritage Foundation in its recent guide on how to identify CRT. It warns of a new tactic deployed by the movement's defenders. They now deny that the curricula and the training programs in question form part of CRT, insisting that the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, the DEI programs of trainers like Ibram X. Kendi, right, who got paid like $500 a minute to talk to all of the administration and leadership of CMS a few years ago, or a few months ago. Um, also Robin D'Angelo, she of the white guilt um, or uh, yeah, or the, yeah, the white guilt, white, white guilt and white privilege um, that these are distinct from the academic works of professors, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw. Crenshaw was the intersectionality uh a creator and Derek Bell was the CRT creator uh, and uh, Crenshaw was Bell's disciple. So certainly regardless of which trendy three letter term you prefer to describe the latest iteration of America's obsession with race, the goal in each case is the same, which is to shift away from meritocracy in favor of an equality of outcome system. That's always the same thread throughout all of these programs, equality of outcome not a meritocracy. And they try to shame and guilt and cajole and convince and persuade and try to do whatever they can to make people come to the same conclusion that, okay, fine, yes, we need to do something to help boost, to help affect certain outcomes, right? But implementing a grievance model, which is what this is, it doesn't fix the problems that it's supposed to be trying to solve, right? There's a ton of evidence that suggests that these DEI programs, that they actually are more harmful than helpful. They don't actually advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. Harvard did a big study on this and found that when uh, people are run through these types of trainings, it creates a worse environment for the very things that they purport to be trying to solve. Why would you do it? You invite these types of trainings into your uh, your your business. This stuff becomes a cancer. The shift is due to the clear failure of affirmative action policies, though. This is what Ali writes about uh, the the majority of the piece. It's called "Critical Race Theories: New Disguises" at unheard.com. and she says rather than recognize the failure of this approach, this affirmative action approach. Its proponents have chosen to double down without analyzing why affirmative action failed to produce equal opportunity for black students and without trying to identify solutions that would be more impactful. 
those interested in critical race theory and DEI or SEL, right, what they wish to do is to manipulate the system even further. Instead of focusing on ways to lift black students up as individuals with their own agency, with their own ability, with their own choices, right, rather than do that, they believe the system has to reorient itself to produce a desired outcome. And you got to do that starting with kindergarten. And it is dependent on the magnification of barriers and tension between racial groups. Something which is more than likely psychologically damaging, not just to one race or group of kids, but to everyone, right? You're blaming the white kids for slavery and Jim Crow. You lay that at their feet. For black kids, uh, they're being taught that it's the entire system and not their own effort and abilities. And so, you know, you're basically what? Not in control of your life. What a, what a terribly destructive message to impart to anyone. To anyone. Why would you tell somebody that they are not in control of their own destiny? That everything is rigged against them. Because this then discourages hard work. It discourages motivation. It discourages ambition and aspiration. It breeds distrust and hostility, not just uh, to, uh, to you know, all people of a different race that you believe is keeping you from uh, determining your own future, but also the very teachers that are there trying to help you and impart the skills and knowledge, right? This then truncates their ability to learn and progress in school. The narrative that white people hold the power conveys a notion of white superiority and it creates an illusion of black dependency on white largesse. And in the schools themselves, this can lead to physical, actual segregation. Any ideology that separates people due to their immutable characteristics is not going to lift up minority kids. It's just not. It's going to drag society down into neo-segregation. That's what we're seeing. It's hardly surprising that students today seem more anxious, more scared, lacking in confidence than any previous generation for which we have the data. The grievance model methods are spreading nonetheless. Rather than push race to the foreground, anti-racists would do better to cultivate a learning environment for students where the focus is on being kind and respectful. Something to think about this weekend. Brett Winterbull up next on News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. I'll catch up with you again on Monday. Have a good weekend. Don't break anything while I'm gone.